0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room Podcast Editor. I'm so glad you've joined us for this episode, which continues our ongoing series in Perspectives on Senior Leadership. Today we're privileged to have as our guest, Admiral John Richardson, the current Chief of Naval Operations, or CNO. Admiral Richardson is the 31st to hold this position, which is the highest ranking in the U.S. Navy, and he has held this post since 2015. Admiral Richardson was commissioned in 1982 after graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy. He has spent most of his career with the submarine force and has commanded at every level. Additionally, he has served as chief of staff for Naval Forces Europe and Naval Forces Africa, and before assuming the role of CNO, was the director of the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program. So welcome to the War Room, Admiral Richardson.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks very much.
1: Great. So we've asked you on the podcast to talk with us about senior leadership and your perspectives on that. So I'll start with a question about the strategic leaders or the senior leaders who you most admire, Mm -hmm. uh, whether those are civilian or military, historical or contemporary.
0: I'll tell you what, I've always been a fan of uh, General George Washington. Uh, First, as a general, I thought he executed the uh, campaign uh, for uh, our nation's independence uh, you know very very skillfully and he was having to balance a number of things you know the the aims of the campaign were changing throughout uh, the war uh, for independence the uh, resourcing that uh, was supplied to his army was you know running hot and cold less all the time optimal yeah, less than optimal exactly and uh, you know and he was fighting in this uh environment where it was you know highly even the the domestic population was highly uncertain and split in terms of uh where their loyalties were uh throughout that and he was fighting you know perhaps the finest military right. in the world at that time and so uh but i thought that over the course of the campaign just from a military perspective he exploited you know the uh, interior lines that he had he exploited the distance over which the uh British Army would have to travel, and uh, in the end, he you know made fewer mistakes and took advantage of uh, his adversary's mistakes to the point that uh, he culminated the campaign in victory. Uh, but perhaps the thing that uh, kind of demands the most respect in my mind is that you know, of course, we know he went on from that role to become the first president of the United States. And uh, by virtue of his victory in the War of Independence and his role as our first president, I, I think that uh, he could have done anything he wanted in mm-hmm. terms of leading our nation. And he chose to walk away. He chose to double down on this idea of democracy and uh, and step away, realizing that his time was done and allow for the democratic process from this nascent constitution to exercise itself and elect a new president. And so I think that, uh, you know, that humility, uh, and he always had a uh, a sense of humility in his interaction with political leaders. Uh, I thought that that was uh, something that's very admirable. From a maritime perspective, I have to say that I'm a great fan of uh, Nelson and Nimitz, uh, who both, I think, had the same sort of attributes, which was they were able to articulate their commander's guidance and bring their subordinate commanders on board in a way that uh, provided, I guess, the operational and psychological safety to experiment, to go out there and achieve their uh, full potential, uh, to be creative, and uh, and do so in a way that uh, that you know the price for failure wasn't going to be, uh, you know, kind of a go no go-no-go situation and uh, I think that both uh, Nelson at Trafalgar and in those campaigns, Nimitz throughout the campaign in the Pacific, uh, that creativity by by their subordinate commanders, which flourished in the environment that they set, uh, was, dis- was key and decisive in their victory.
1: Great. So I think you've given us um, some examples from across a range of time periods across a range of sort of strategic contexts, but you've identified a few attributes that you think are really critical um, for strategic leaders. When you think about Navy leaders more broadly, uh, the, the type of leaders that you're looking for in today's Navy, in the 21st century Navy, um, what kind of characteristics are you looking for in, in those leaders who are coming up today?
0: Yeah, so we've uh, articulated in uh, a document we call a design for maintaining su- maritime superiority, uh, you know, four core attributes that uh, are important uh, not only for our leaders but everybody in in, you know, in the navy. And so it's this these attributes of integrity and uh toughness and accountability and initiative. And so those four are and we could go on for the entire podcast talking about uh you know, the details of those uh, four attributes. With respect to leadership, uh, as articulated in our leader development framework, I would say that uh, you know, we definitely want leaders that know how to win, right? At the end of the day, you know, you've got to be winning, particularly as we think about competition, great power competition returning as a a dynamic in our current security environment. We want to be not just competing, but we want to be winning that competition. So make no mistake about that. Uh, The recipe, or the road to that that, uh, victory for leaders, the road to achieving that level of leadership, uh, we describe as having two lanes. One is uh, very familiar to all of us. Uh, It is the road of being competent uh, an expert, indeed, at what you do, right? So you've got to know your business. Uh, whether you're at uh, junior levels of leadership, we we expect technical competence in, in your warfighting area all the way up to uh, strategic leadership. There's another lane in the road, though, which uh, I think uh, captures the importance of character, right? And so we do want these leaders to be the uh, type of people that, through their character, uh, will inspire trust and confidence up and down the chain of command and Trust and confidence between the na- the Navy or any service and the uh, nation, w- which we're sworn to protect.
1: Great. So, if we think about those those four qualities, those four characteristics of integrity, toughness, accountability, and initiative, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you envision leaders developing those? Qualities or characteristics? Sure,
0: uh, we're blessed actually in the military to have a lot of you know very robust ways through which we can uh, develop those those attributes. Uh, one is uh, we have a really great system of schools, don't we? I mean, here we are at the Army I'd War like College. To, I'd <laughs> like to think so. Really. Yeah, and uh, and you know, you're a professor of strategy here in uh, Carlisle, and so uh, by virtue of and, and you know those education that education starts early right i mean as soon as you uh, join whether right. you're uh, an officer program or enlisted first thing you do is go to school and you start learning so that's one way is through a terrific uh, system of schools uh, both training and education i would say that uh, there's also a uh, very robust uh, kind of on the job training program in all of our services so there's a system of qualifications. There's a system of uh, you know, both in watch standing and uh, for, for positions uh, in our services. Uh, so, for instance, you can, in the Navy you can qualify for a specific watch station or, you know, at some point you're going to qualify for department head and then command and, on, and so on and so forth. So there's this on-the-job element uh, that, that builds these uh, attributes as well. And then finally, uh, what we uh, try and encourage, and I I know the Army's uh, there with us, uh, is this uh, robust and kind of fervent uh, atmosphere of self-learning, right, where we want to be insatiable readers, insatiable learners. Uh, While we do have a great system of schools, uh, we're not going to wait for that system. Uh, We're going to get right after diving in and finding the re- appropriate references and learning about whatever challenge faces us.
1: Sure. What other um, pieces of advice on that last piece in particular? So the Navy or the Army, they're going to send you to school. They're going to give you assignments. They're going to give you some that, some of that on-the-job training. Right. When it comes to self-development, you talked about reading. Uh, what are some of the other, other ways that, um, say, young officers or young enlisted personnel or even— mid-career senior folks can, can continue that self-development process.
0: So certainly there is a, you know, uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, literature out there that you can just read. And, uh, you know, I'm i I'm a a big fan of the saying, if you want to get a new idea, read an old book there. You know, if you really dig into the history, there are not too many problems that we're confronted that we're confronting today that haven't been confronted in some form in our past. It may not be exactly the same, but, uh, the major features are probably present. You have to find the right histories. You know, you want those histories that will transport you back as vividly as possible so that it's not, you know, some kind of a 2020 hindsight. Of course, it was all going to turn out well. You what want, fools
1: they were. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you want to try and get a, a history that that allows you to appreciate all of the uncertainty that existed at the time, how the leader wrestled with that uncertainty and made important decisions in the face of uh, uncertain and incomplete information. So that's the reading part. I will tell you also that I'm a huge fan of uh, connections. And so in addition to the literature, uh, most people, me included, have sort of a great uh, network of mentors right? Uh, people who have gone down these roads before us and are still with us. And uh, I found them to be very generous with their time and their insights. And so that would be another way in terms of just teaching yourself, hey, make sure you're staying connected. Again, if you have a problem. Uh, there's probably somebody else who's had a chance to wrestle with that problem in the near past or even maybe uh, has is wrestling with it now reaching out to your peers your fellow commanders if you will reaching out to those who have gone before you uh, I think is another way to really uh, teach yourself uh, to confront these challenges as they come great
1: what about advice um, if you are the mentor Um, how do you envision, say, officers at the 05 or 06 level developing some of the officers who work for them, some of the uh, enlisted, uh, junior enlisted or NCOs who who work for them?
0: Right. Uh, Well, a couple of things that I'll I'll answer that question on a couple of different scales. Uh, One, if you're a mentor, um, and I I hope that, you know, everybody from at least 05 and and senior, you know, you're probably a a mentor to a few people. Uh, And as I've had these conversations with our leadership, you know, most people have trouble mentoring more than, you know, a dozen people. I mean, it's just so... Even that
1: feels like a lot. It does, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: exactly. And so, uh, but even within that, uh, you know, that posse of protégés, right, that you've got as a mentor, let's say that there's 12 just for discussion purposes, uh, I always advocate that those mentors uh, try and do their best to ensure that that is a diverse group, right, that as they look at their uh, protégés, their mentees, uh, that uh, they've got different, you know, uh, upbringings, diversity of thought, diversity of ethnicity, you, you, t- you name it, you know, whatever dimension of diversity uh, you can think about, try and make your group of uh, protégés, mentees as diverse as possible. And then... Um, and on the uh, on kind of the person-to-person level, um, you know, the best mentors I've had have always, they've never really sort of given me the answer, but they've asked those great tantalizing questions that caused me to think about different areas of the decision space that I hadn't thought of before. And so it's, you know, really a matter of asking uh, the right questions, to tease uh, the learning out of uh, the protege, you know, the mentee. And uh, so I think the combination of both of those is what really constitutes, you know, a good mentoring uh, uh, environment. I I would add, just if I could uh, say one more thing, Um, moving beyond mentorship to advocacy, right? And so uh, I would say that, you know, being a mentor is a kind of a personal relationship, a, a deeply personal relationship. We, you, know, you become committed to the person that you're mentoring. You have skin in the game, you know. Uh, but it is personal. And uh, so this idea of advocacy moves that relationship beyond just the personal one-on-one out to the broader arena. And so uh, an advocate now uh, is always scanning the horizon for opportunities for their for their uh, protege, right? actively searching. So if a particular job opening or an opportunity pops up, uh, that advocate will call, uh, you know, make an overt action to say, hey, look, as you're considering fi- to the person who's going to fill that spot, mm-hmm. as you're considering all of the candidates, I just want you to be aware that I have the perfect candidate for that job. Right? I know them well. They're one of my protégés, my mentees. They are perfectly suited for that opportunity. The combination of this advocacy and this diversity of your body of mentees will serve to, I think, put diversity in important positions around uh, our military, which is becoming, you know, more conclusively uh, decisive in terms of uh, building a team that is creative and seeing all the angles on a particular mm-hmm. problem. And I think it's more important, the more strategic. The uh, questions become. Right.
1: No, I think that that relationship between the diversity of the team, the answers that you get, the sort of team that you build, um, and the idea that that might start with sort of mentoring relationships is a really uh, really important one. If we could turn to thinking about um, your own experiences at the strategic level as a senior leader, um, I'd like for you to think about a personal leadership challenge um, that has sort of shaped the way you think about leadership, uh, and leadership in the Navy in particular today, mm-hmm. yep. and maybe tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, one thing that does just uh, continue to hit me, and my thinking is always developing on this, is uh, really, uh, and it, I, I would say that this sort of starts at the uh, major command level, right? So as I think about, uh, you know, an officer's career in particular, uh, there are a couple of, well, for the most part, it's a, it's a linear progression. You know, you get... Your next job is you get increased responsibility responsibility. and that sort of thing. But it's just kind of a bigger version of the one before it. Uh, But there are a number of inflection points in a career that I think are different in nature. Right. And so, you know, the first one might be the transition from your student life as a young person to a leader life. Right. That's a big transition. You're no longer worried about your grades and your self-development. You're now worried about your team. And that's, a, that's a not that, that is different in nature, right? Uh, I would say that from there, uh, the next major leap is to command. You know when you are first put in command, uh, sort of the uh, finality, the ownership that comes with command is different in nature than any of the subordinate positions. The other one that uh, is it, it where uh, it, your question starts to really be relevant is in major command. Which is a bit more strategic than uh, unit command, right? And so now, uh, two things about major command: one, you're commanding commanders, right? Which is different than just commanding a unit. And then also, you're mostly you're commanding at a distance, right? So you're not mm-hmm. living with your unit. Right, that you move know?
1: from direct sort of leadership to indirect.
0: Exactly. So, uh, so, and this is where I, you know, we start to train our strategic thinking, right? Because as you move up from there, if you're successful in major command, they're going to give you more, and you're going to get a bigger team, which is even more indirect. And yet, you're going to be uh, accountable and responsible uh, for, that, for leading that team appropriately, you know, properly, effectively. And so how do you get a sense for these bigger and bigger organizations that have to achieve uh, bigger and bigger goals? uh well it is about that team that you assemble around you right and how do you uh ensure that that team is giving you a full map of the decision space that you're going to have to navigate as you move as you move this organization forward and so i would say that in those areas where uh you know i would feel pretty good about the decisions that uh we've made it's because we had a really great representation of all of the uh, space, you know, all of the aspects of that decision. And uh, we therefore made a fully informed decision. Uh, where I've kind of been disappointed in myself in terms of leading the Navy, it's because some part of that decision space was was dark to me, right? It was blind. I was blind to it, and therefore made a decision that was not fully informed. Uh, was somehow incomplete, uh, inconsiderate of that particular dimension. And it was because, you know, that whatever the team was, it had either changed and in some part was missing that was there before, or the team was just you know, that I put together was just not uh, adequate to the task. And so there is this really important aspect of making sure, hey, you're not going to lead it directly. You're going to lead it through people now. Uh, who are those people, and are they giving you, sure. a, you know, a full appreciation of the of the whole system?
1: Sure, because your team now is about as big as you could imagine if you're yeah. leading the Navy, right? Right. Um, what are some of the ways you mitigate against those blind spots or those uh, sort of opaque areas? Right.
0: So uh, one is uh, you've got to well, uh, a lot of dialogue, right? And I probably. Uh, could be accused of kind of being over collaborative, uh, and so in, you know, if you've got a major decision that uh, you've got to make at some point in time, you know, between now and that time. Uh, there's going to be a, a phase of the decision-making and, and, you know, you becoming aware of all the aspects of the decision that's going to be kind of like an expansion, right? You're going to get a lot of people bringing in a lot of different aspects of that decision. You're going to be asking a lot of different questions of your team. And so you can see this, you know, this decision space being mapped out. Right. And uh, if you do that well, you get a complete picture and therefore you reach a point where, okay, now it's time to converge because we actually have to decide to do something here. Uh, What are the aspects that we're going to take into account? What are the priorities? And you get this convergence towards the decision point. Right. Uh, So how do you get that expansion uh, to be as complete as you can be? A lot of it goes back to uh, a lot of communication, right? You've got to create this environment where everybody on your team feels very free to paint out part of that decision space. And it may not be the most relevant part. You know, it almost might be irrelevant. But it's important that they feel uh, empowered to contribute to the conversation. And then uh, who do you have uh, telling you stuff, right? It kind of goes back to our diversity uh, discussion. Uh, You know, if everybody on my team is like me, well, I'm going to get kind of a one-dimensional, you know, perspective on that decision landscape. And so you really need a lot of different perspectives from a lot of different uh, places uh, that will, you know, shine light into your blind spots and make sure that, that that whole space is illuminated. So, the combination of uh, I guess it's inclusion and diversity uh, would hopefully give you the full map. And I think everybody's pretty smart, right? And uh, so, well, you're a professor, so you can check me there. <laughs> Maybe everybody's not, but most of the people that I deal with are pretty smart. And if they're presented, you know, all of the factors with the decision generally will come to you know, a way forward that's, uh, acceptable and productive. Good.
1: If I could ask you to think about, um, two specific days or sort of kinds of days. Um, and that would be you know, as, as a strategic leader. So at the, at the h- highest levels, um, of leadership, what's been your worst day and your best day or what the characteristics of, of yeah. the worst day and the best day? Yeah.
0: You know, I got to say that, uh, I've just sort of been at this long enough, uh, Jackie, that, uh, you know, when we somebody will often come in and say, hey, I've got some bad news for you or, hey, so, you know, I've got some good news for you. And I, at this point, it's like, look, like, there's no bad and good news. There is just news. Right. And uh, and so anything that uh, keeps the Navy and the nation, the joint force, our contribution to the joint force, moving in a productive direction is that's all really that I, that I can hope to do. And so we've identified, you know, a strategic end. We've we've got a path to that end, at least a hypothesis of a path. And so we start marching down, and we're sensing as we go, uh, and uh, there'll be news. You know, some of it will kind of keep us moving down that path. I guess that's good news or better news. And some of it's going to knock us off that path or uh, set us back. And, you know, that's not so good news. Uh, So it all starts to become, in my mind, you know, as a non-emotional and systemic as I can make it, uh, as I as I lead the Navy forward. Uh, but there are some things that uh, I would say characterize good days anyway, and that's when you see the people around you succeeding. And so I've you know tried to be uh, a person who uh, empowers and promotes and allows other people to succeed, to see them develop and challenge them with new opportunities, put them into opportunities where they can succeed, uh, higher and higher stakes, you know, watch them play the game at that level. And when I see that, you know, people moving beyond maybe even what they thought they could do and, uh, and doing well, succeeding, to watch that uh, manifest itself within them, I would say that those are great days.
1: Great. That's really helpful. I like the sort of reframing of what is, what counts as good and bad. Yeah. Um, and how, how we think about that can affect the, the way we move forward. Um, all right. this is the last question. This is my favorite one as okay. a, as a professor, um, and a, and a lifelong sort of reader and lover of books. But mm-hmm. is there something that you're reading right now that you would uh, recommend to our readers that they add to their reading list or they add to their, um, sort of night nightstand? Sure.
0: Uh, I would say that uh, the books I'm reading right now or or have just recently read uh and I would also advocate that you go to the CNO's reading list and so uh Oh that's you
1: know, a it was well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice segue there.
0: <laughs> uh you know, and I've got a uh you know, an inability to to uh squeeze the list down so there's probably 150 books on the reading list. Uh, I um so beware just a couple months. beware fine. yeah. Uh, but I would say the ones that have uh, captured my ina- imagination uh, recently would be, uh, well, there's a book by Professor Hess from the University of Virginia. It's called Humility is the New Smart. And, and it's about uh, the, I, it, he's not talking about religious humility in this uh, context. Uh, he talks about professional humility, the idea that even as a leader, you're not going to be the sole owner of all the greatest ideas. And uh, But he casts this in a uh in the current environment where you know a lot of the uh, of a lot of what defined uh, authority in the past, the ability to work with numbers, the ability to manage a lot of data in your head, you know, that's all being done by machines and artificial okay. intelligence much now. Faster much, much, much faster much more efficient. Exactly. So what are the competitive advantages? Well, their creativity, their innovation, their ability to team together. You know, this idea of uh, leadership in the smart machine age is, I think, a very, very powerful one. Uh, the other one that is uh, terrific right now is... Uh, this uh, book by Trent Hone called uh, Learning War, and it's a, about the, uh, the U.S. Navy between 1895 and 1945 and the complex adaptive system that was started when we formed our war college, right, with uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan and Luce and Sims and all of those insurgents, Mr. Hone right. calls them, uh, that said, hey, you know, we've sort of reached our continental boundaries as a nation right now, late 1800s. And uh, so for us as a nation to continue to prosper, we're going to have to go offshore, overseas, to international markets. What sort of navy is needed for this new strategic direction the nation has to take? And then what sort of officer corps is required to lead that navy? and that uh, framed a whole new set of questions and those questions were explored and answered by our war college up in uh, Newport those are the types of questions i'm sure you explore and answer here at the army war college and then as we went through you know the stand up of the war college world war 1 and then the interwar period up in Newport uh, resulting in war plan orange and then not just stopping there but also the conduct of the war itself, how the Navy continued to learn as a system, uh from the strategic down to the tactical, uh that book really captures that very, very well.
1: Excellent. So I could I, give you six more if you want. I mean yeah. <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll do maybe we'll do that in a second. Um or I would like to I I would like to know those at least. Um I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with before we sign off?
0: Well, I'll tell you, it's a privilege to be up here at the Army War College. It's my second uh, visit here. I look forward to uh, the time with the audience. Uh, it's a conversation that I hope to uh, inspire uh, because, uh, as I said, you know, I'm listening as much as I am uh, transmitting these days, and uh, particularly uh, an institution like this, which performs at the absolute highest levels of its business, uh, but from you know, a little bit different perspective than the one I, uh, you know, I marinate in every day, right. I think uh, this is an invaluable opportunity. And I want to thank you also for giving me the time to talk to you today.
1: Great. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.